I know I'm not supposed to take the NSAID, but I'm going to take that, but I'm still going to be good and take my ACE inhibitor. So I think we should be, we could be better about that. 100% agree. Yeah. Who, whose bell just went off on their computer? It was mine. Were you talking when that bell went off? No. Okay, we're cool then. Okay, we're cool. <laughs> I thought I closed it. No, I'm serious. I no, it's, 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 it's okay. It's, again, it's just one of those things. But I don't know why it, um, I thought I shut it off. So I'm not sure why it got broke through. Because computers are computers. <laughs> It's an atrionitrite peptide effect on your phone. <laughs> it's a pressure, uh, pressure uh, notification racist. <laughs> if you get enough of them, they'll just make their way through. Oh, okay. Ring escape. Uh, Ring, yes. Ring escape. <laughs> Renal physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm, the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are discussing the exciting conclusion to Chapter 6, and this is also the conclusion to Part 1 of the book. So this kind of feels monumental. We are actually making progress here. Tonight's crew, we got everybody here. Say your name and introduce yourself. Roger? Roger Rodby, uh, Rush University Medical Center, Chicago. Melanie? Melanie Honig, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. Letty? Leticia Rolon, UCSF. Anna? I'm Anna Gaddy. I'm a fellow at Indiana University. JC. Juan Carlos. JC Velez, nephrologist at Oxnard Health in New Orleans. Amy. I'm Amy Yao. I'm from the University of Arizona in Tucson. Excellent. And Josh. Josh Waitzman, nephrology fellow from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. Okay. So the name of chapter six is the effects of hormones on renal function. We got through aldosterone in our last section. So we are starting with atrial natriatic peptide. Anybody have some opening thoughts of a- on AMP? I was just going to say that we mentioned this, I think, in the first podcast. And Melanie said something very slick, you know, kind of like derogatory about how it's kind of weak sauce. Or it's the only like non-volume and salt preserving hormone and just sort of dismissive about it. So I think we should spend a good two minutes <laughs> talking about <laughs> interesting things. But it is clinically relevant now, so I, there, there's a little bit to say. Well, that's the question. The question is how clinically relevant is it? Because, you know, we'll go through all these mechanisms and they're all, it, it, there's no shortage of places that it affects, but it affects it a little bit. And uh, and, it, and, it, and, it's, and it can be overridden by just about anything. So that, I think that is the question of this, uh, of this hormone. So I think before, before we totally get rid of the ANP section from our discussion, I think the entrance in the last five years or so of Secubitril, Valsartan, or Entresto onto the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction scene has really kind of changed how important we see this, this hormone as. The Secubitril, Valsartan medicine is now part of that standard guideline-directed medical therapy in the treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and we see that it has a benefit over ACE inhibitor alone. Um, so I think that really drives the reason for a discussion here. And secubitril, yeah. Secubitril. What's its relationship to ANP? So secubitril is a neprilysin inhibitor. 
if I'm getting that right. That's correct. And that is the enzyme that degrades ANP. So the effect of Secubitril is to keep ANP, BNP levels high, which results in more effective naturesis. It's an AMP stabilizer. It's an AMP stabilizer. And that gets you more diuresis. He says that the effect is small, but it is measurable. I think one thing that's cool, right, we talk about the book as a time capsule from the year 2000. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes we use that to count against it to say, oh, look at all the stuff that's happened in the last 20 years. But here's like one place where I feel like Rose is like ahead of the field and telling us where things are going. On page 190, he tells us that endopeptidase inhibition, so inhibition of the enzymes that degrade ANP could be important in the treatment of edema in patients with heart failure, especially since most patients are treated with an ACE inhibitor to reduce systemic afterload. So maybe that combination of natriuretic peptide degradation inhibitor plus ACE inhibitor is going to be helpful in the future. And that's actually where the field ends up heading 15 years later, which is pretty cool. So I've got a story about that. The Club Study Group had just finished the Herbisartan type 2 diabetic trial. And this was Bristol-Myers Squibb. They also did the Captopril trial with us. And, you know, type 1 diabetic, type 2 diabetic nephropathy. IDNT. The IDNT, thank you. Yeah. So we're like, what do we do next? And uh, BMS had this drug on they were making called Amapatrolat. Oh, yeah. And it was it was a combination of an ACE inhibitor and an endopeptidase inhibitor, which is what you're talking about, for exactly that reason. Because it's the natriuretic response, as he points out at the top of page 190, is enhanced when you put the two together. And that was, we were talking about, maybe that's going to be our next approach. They would fund it. Unfortunately, angioedema was so bad with that drug that it, it had to be taken off and it wasn't useful for that. So it's interesting. I mean, what you're telling us, though, is that it went on now taking the other route with an ARB where you wouldn't have the angioedema from that that aspect of it and it be, and it actually has become a successful cardiac drug. Is that right. what you're telling so us, Yeah. That's the the Paradigm HF trial which came out in 2014 that uses the next generation combo that, that Roger's talking about. It combines Valsartan and ARB with Secubitril, which is that neprolysin inhibitor. And that combination leads to the sustained high levels of ANP and none of that remaining high bradykinin level that goes along with the ACE inhibition. Uh, but instead, you just get the ARB afterload reduction. The way that he phrased it in the book that I found really helpful was that it overcomes sodium avidity from the AMP, which I found just to be a nice way of putting it. just want to make a, a comment about neprilysin, succubitril. So it's interesting, uh, so neprilysin, just want to clarify that is not a specific enzyme uh, in, in the way it's, it cleaves natriuretic peptides. Uh, Neprilysin is actually a very promiscuous enzyme that is involved in cleaving angiotensin peptides, uh, endothelin, and something called substance P. And if you remember the whole angioedema story where patients are placed on an ACE inhibitor and they bradykinin goes up and then uh, patients develop this, this reaction and it has been historically attributed to the bradykinin accumulation in the context of an ACE inhibitor. However, substance P is also uh, a player in that. So when Roger was talking about the combination of an ACE inhibitor plus a neuralizing inhibitor, you're essentially blocking two enzymes that both may lead to angioedema. That's why this drug failed. Now you bring an ARB, an angiotensin receptor blocker, combined with a neuralizing inhibitor, and it worked because the angioedema was no longer a major problem. Um, and the other comment I wanted to make is, I, I can't wait to hear Melanie uh, comments about the physiology of AMP, but I, since we're talking about clinical things, it just reminds me early on um, when natriuretic peptides were pursued as as drugs to, to for the AKI or the acute decompensated heart failure patient, 
And I think it's just before my time as a resident fellow where the first trial was the Anaratai trial, atrial natriuretic peptide to treat AKI, ATN. And the trial failed, uh, maybe because the patients got it too late, but the point is that there was a lot of hope for an natriuretic peptide in AKI. It didn't work. Later on, a decade later, we had brain natriuretic peptide, the Neseritai, Natricor was the brand name, that was introduced to treat acute decompensated heart failure, patients with pulmonary edema. And, you know, it was used for a few years. And who uses that? It's, it's, it just went into ex- extinction. Nobody uses it. And now more recently, they uh, tried another atriotic peptide. It is actually in this book chapter. It, this chapter talks about urodilating or I don't know how to pronounce it. But the, the, the other name of this drug was ularatide. And cardiologists were all... F- you know, got hold with this with this path, and again the trial failed. So three failures in the context of acute physiology, but yet in the chronic heart failure patient, it works. That is to me intriguing. I have no clue why, but that's kind of the history of that uh, molecule. There's there's just one a classic Burton Rose line that I couldn't let go. He was talking about trying to figure out the significance of AMP, and he says. The physiologic importance of most hormones has been demonstrated in part by removal of their site of production. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. the cardiac source of ANP limits the feasibility of this approach. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just awesome. That was just the best. It's a conundrum, isn't it? That was yeah. the best. Just the pre-ECMO world is a real hard time to live in. I think... <laughs> Maybe we were just asking ANP to do the wrong thing. And, you know, on a day-to-day level, perhaps ANP does do what it's asked um, to, you know, if you have a small increase or, as he says, a salty snack, you can get rid of <laughs> that amount of salt. But it's not going to be what you're looking for in heart failure. And to that point, I pulled the paper that he referenced, I think, on snack-induced ANP. And it's from 1985. It was a letter to the New England Journal. And I guess Cape cod chips had just come out. It was, they said five volunteers from our laboratory consumed 85 grams of potato chips in uh, (laughs) two hours or less. And and the levels of ANP and everybody went up from 19 picograms per ml to 31. And so more than 50% increase just from those Cape Cod chips. And then the article goes on to make jokes about Cape Cod and New England and Sodium. 85 but. grams of potato chips is a lot of potatoes. I was going to ask, does anyone have... Right, so a standard little single-serving bag like of packet. Lay's is one ounce, so that's 30 grams. So it's like three three packages Yeah, of they said three chips. ounces. Yeah. It was three ounces. Yeah, that's a lot. Well, but I think also, importantly, what didn't happen, nobody had a stroke... <laughs> Nobody, you know, I mean, that's, that's the point, right? So it's not just that their AMP went up, it's that nothing bad happened. And that's the whole point. Like you're saying, I mean, I eat salt all the time and I don't just like walk around with a headache. I mean. So AMP is like the Rodney Dangerfield of It gets no respect. Like (laughs) didn't get enough respect. Anything that lets me eat a, a small fry without, you know, having a heart attack. I think we don't give it enough credit. Joel, don't you remember the uh, the logo for uh, Lay's potato chips? No, you can't eat just one. That was there. Pringle, well, that's the once you pop, you can't guys. stop. Pringle. No, that's the yeah. Pringles is the once you pop, you can't stop. Lay's is you can't eat. Just Thank one. you. You Pringles, potato crisps in a tube. Pop it up and get in the mood. Once you pop, you can stop. Never had a chip like this before. Got to have some more. Once you pop, you can stop. 
It's so great how you assembled people who know everything. All about salty snacks. So I got to say for for Doctor's Day, National Doctor's Day, which just happened, they had like a tray of salty and sweet snacks for us, but they've definitely downsized on the portion size. We had half ounce bags of chips, (laughs) which are 15 grams, which are just not even worth opening. Like at that point. That's that's like a plane. That's an airplane size. That's that's a crime against humanity. When we used, when we went to Mount Desert Island, that would be one of the experiments we would do. Mark Seidel would have us salt load, and um, yeah, he still does that. So we did that the year that I went. Mm-hmm. We had to eat. It was so unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the supermarket. <laughs> I went to the supermarket with him to get the stuff, and he picks out all these hot dogs and he says if you get the low fat they're saltier so we had we had a, a cart of hot dogs and pickles and the women in the supermarket are looking at me like tell your husband to you know shop <laughs> but nobody's blood pressure went up but we did watch and it was so interesting how different and i'm sure we'll get to this how different how we were uh, how we less readily excreted our salt over the next day compared to how quickly we got rid of the water in a different experiment. Now, the, the one thing that is interesting about AMP is uh, how does it work, right? We've been talking about a natriuretic hormone, and I think we should we have mentioned this, I believe, in a yeah, previous... Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of different mechanisms that it goes through. Do you want to talk about those, JC? Uh, yeah, I was just going to talk about primarily the, the way it blocks sodium reabsorption, right? So... For, for those, you know, when I started reading about natriuretic peptide, I was desperately looking for this sodium secretion mechanism in the tubules, right? And it doesn't exist. It's simply a, a, a mechanism that relies on GFR, so filtration of sodium, and, and blocking the epithelial sodium channel that is controlled by aldosterone and the collecting duct. So it's kind of a, a peptide that antagonizes uh, the ENAC. You know, I always think about amyloride, triamterine, spironolactone, epilurinone, etc. Yes, they're very effective uh, medications in certain conditions, but it's not, we don't see them as this potent natriuretics, like for instance, a lube triuretic. So, I mean, it's just kind of a simplistic observation, but uh, I wonder if that's part of the reasons why it's not uh, for clinically uh, tremendously uh, useful as it is physiologically. As a mechanism, the ANP binds to an ANP like transmembrane receptor, which then leads to the increase in cyclic GMP that downregulates ENAC expression at the epithelial surface. And also in some cell types, people think it, it decreases the expression of the sodium potassium uh, exchanger. Um, and so that combination ultimately leads to a decreased ability to reabsorb sodium and, and excrete potassium. So similar to how a milliride would work, but also that sodium potassium exchanger angle really affects all sodium reabsorption in the cells that ANP uh, binds to. Um, I had read something along the cyclic GMP um, pathway that it it um, can also affect the organic cation transporter in the proximal tubule, and then also the number and activity of the NKCC in the thick ascending limb. So that may be part of the reason why maybe AMP is a little bit stronger of a natriuretic agent rather than just a milliride. So JC mentioned that it increased the GFR, and he specifically walks through. Mm-hmm. He says you'll get an increase in GFR without a change in renal blood flow. And so he says that results in it is an afferent vasodilation and an efferent vasoconstriction. So total resistance across the glomerulus is fixed, but you get increased GFR. But the interesting thing about that is that that's what happens when you're, you know, basically pre-renal, not when you're volume overloaded, when you're 
pre-renal, you're trying to make the bet. Your renal blood flow is impaired, so you open up your afferent, you constrict your efferent, so that you can whatever gets there, you increase your filtration fraction, increase your GFR, and then after that, because you've had an increased filtration fraction, your proximal reabsorption goes up. So it's kind of counterintuitive that that would lead to a naturesis because that's the kind of thing you do when you don't want a naturesis. I found a lot of paradoxes in the whole atrial natriuretic factor story. So I'm not sure I completely understand it yet. Anna, do you have something? Oh, I was just going to say that I thought it was really cool. He mentioned that um, the transgenic mice, that they have a normal naturesis unless they're salt loaded. I thought that was really cool too. Like, I think this is one of those things that because we don't see sick people, it's not a, it's it's a health thing. It's not a sickness thing. So I, I think, think that was really I neat. I think that's really, I really think that's an important point is that ANP really depends on normal blood pressure. And we're so used to evaluating the kidney and these in these stressed moments when you're hypotensive or challenged. And in that case, the overriding signal is to retain sodium and AMP is going gonna, is gonna to have really no power in the face of that kind of situation. But in a normal blood pressure situation, as if you're eating Cape Cod chips and you, you know, <laughs> AMP may be more physiologically important. Um, I'm, I'm going to, uh, unless it's very interesting, I'm going to, I'm the, I'm the, Kill us on A and P. Please, can I just yeah, say no, one more thing? Okay, Melody, Melody, because it's Melody. <laughs> no, just building on what Roger said and what you said, I think that the fact that you have a certain set of tools that you can deploy at, at different times. So if you vasoconstrict the efferent and vasodilate the afferent, but you don't have ANG2 on, then even if you're, you're normally we do that to increase GFR, but we're also reabsorbing proximally. But because you would, in this circumstance, not also have those hormones on, you can now have a naturesis. And that's just so elegant. And so counter to what we're, when we're, when we're used to deploying this mechanism, we're Assuming angiotensin two is going to be very strong, and this is the situation where it's not. That isn't. That is interesting. You are right, Melanie. That was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> She's just gunning to be the intro voiceover. Always. No, All I I'm don't want to be. That th- that's the level of interest. Does anybody have anything more interesting <laughs> than that? <laughs> okay, then we're moving on. So there are three. ANP mimics that he discusses. He talks about urodilantin, BNP, and C-type nitriatic peptide, which I kind of liked. I liked that there was an atrial nitriatic, ANP, BNP, and then there was a CNP, which didn't really stand for anything, but they just wanted to use the alphabetical order, which I kind of loved. Urodilantin, this is produced in the kidney. It's found in the urine. It was not metabolized by the endopeptidases, which I guess indicates that it's of different structure or something. He, he, he leaned into that. I didn't quite understand the importance of it. Well, it's amazing because it's only one amino acid longer than atrionetic and natriuretic. And I think it's a, it's the same pro-ANP. You just have one more amino. talked about that. Yeah, yeah. One, it's just one more, one longer than ANP, and yet it's not broken down uh, by the same enzyme. That's pretty remarkable. And then he, he said that it tracks better if you track urodilantin levels and urine sodium levels that's a tighter relationship than urine sodium levels in AMP, kind of inferring that that may be, may be a more important molecule in terms of actual sodium excretion. And then, uh, then BNP, this one comes from the brain. And then he said, oh, and also the ventricles, right? Also important that it also comes from the ventricles. Unclear role. And then he says, could this be the cause of cerebral salt wasting? And then leaves that as a, as a dot, dot, dot. I did look, I did 
put that into Google, I was like, is BNP the cause of cerebral salt wasting? And, it, and Google pointed me to a study of six patients who had cranial surgery and, and elevated BNP levels afterwards. Unfortunately, they didn't have hyponatremia, so I don't understand why they were looking at this. It didn't seem, it didn't seem like a compelling case to me. BNP being the cause of cerebral salt wasting would mean that cerebral salt wasting had to exist, right? Like that's the first <laughs> criteria for that to be a thing. This is what I was going to say. I was like, this is like very controversial. This yeah. line, like it's, yeah. I was going to say, I think JC posted an article a while ago on Twitter that I thought was really helpful with something about is cerebral salt wasting just SIADH with excessive like uh, ANP response. And, you know, I had never thought about it before, but I was like, it is. I read it. I was like, this article is right. It is. And so, you know, I no longer believe in cerebral salt wasting. It's not a thing anymore. So, so Amy, walk, walk me walk me through what what, what, what the, what's going on here. What, what, I'm not sure I understand. You you have this epiphany. And I'm like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I just kind of skimmed it. So I might not do it justice. But basically, it was saying essentially that in an SIAD state, right, you're you, we think patients are euvolemic, but clinically, they're actually a little bit hypervolemic, right? And so Absolutely. because Absolutely. they're a little bit hypervolemic, or maybe the body feels very hypervolemic, that's part of the reason why they're, they, they have sodium in their urine. And so if you give someone like 3% or salt tablets, then that actually tends to increase the urine sodium. It might make the, might make the serum sodium a little bit better, but really that, that increased naturesis is the effect of atrial natural peptide. That's an AMP effect. AMP. Yeah. It seems so testable, right? Like, like, like everybody makes this big deal that the cerebral salt wasting is so mysterious. So it's like, we can measure AMP levels, right? If that's your theory, bring me the data. Yeah. Right, because it makes sense if if you're wasting so much solute because you have A and P, you would I guess clinically be maybe you would be a little bit hypovolemic, right? Because that's what they used to say. Oh, if you're cerebral salt wasting, you're actually hypovolemic because you're wasting salt, and so orthostatics would be checked, and maybe you would check uric acid and things like that. But um, but I I think the A and P story makes a little bit more sense to me. Roger, this is your moment. We, you love talking about the in absurdity of a molecule that can cause that kind of sodium wasting. I, I can't, I can't believe you're biting your tongue here. I can't believe you're not like on, on your standing on your chair. Well, I, I do mean, feel like the listeners should note that he has his hands both on his head, though, <laughs> like in a like in a lean back in a beach chair sort of posture. I so. don't know. The, the, the biggest argument against cerebral salt wasting to me has always been the fact that that to Put out sodium to the point of hypovolemia, that means that you're going to affect every single aspect, every part of the nephron that's made to reabsorb sodium. And it's not, it can't be a little bit subtle. So, you know, you give somebody Lasix and they won't be hypovolemic. They'll get volume depleted, but they won't drop their blood pressure. Why? Because the proximal tubule kick in and aldosterone kicks in and everything makes up for it. You reach a new steady state at a lower total body sodium, but you don't continue to diurese. And so the idea behind cerebral salt wasting is you continue to diurese until you're hypovolemic and hypotensive and orthostatic and everything else. And, and it just doesn't make any sense to me that there could that you could have a molecule that could affect every single part of the nephron. It is interesting when you start reading about ANP that, you know, they describe it in the proximal tubule and the distal tubule, and it affects the response of aldosterone and blah, blah, blah. And so it kind of fits that a little bit, but I've never understood how you could un believe that it's strong enough to do that. It, it's almost a, a religion, and do you believe in cerebral salt wasting or not? And um, I know Joel made us sign a, uh, an affidavit that we all were not we we're not believers in cerebral salt wasting, or we couldn't be on this podcast, so it's a little bit biased. I needed, biased to, I needed to know that you had my back, okay? Right? I was <laughs> I'm not going on this journey with you if you're a CSW. But there's really smart people that totally buy it, and, you know, I hope one day I'm not, uh, you know— 
I don't have egg on my face. I think one of the main reasons for that, uh, Roger, I think is because the the role of of A and P and SIDH is not well known. I guess you know if if you understand the pathogenesis of SIDH and you understand it because the water expansion there is stuck. This is our old studies, elegant studies showing these patients develop a spike in AMP level. There's a compensatory natural reason that occurs in these patients. Now you're trying to come up with an entity that is AMP is a primary phenomenon, not the water retention. <laughs> but it's just, you know, that's where, you know, the story becomes much more compelling for just the same disease, SIDH, with different flavors where the degree of response of AMP might just be more pronounced in one patient to the next. I'm sure there's much more to the story, but, you know, I see it that way. Okay. Uh, anything else that anybody wants to talk about BNP? I, I wanted to talk about BNP and the fact that, again, this is like a time capsule from the past, that this comes from before the BNP heart failure literature existed. Mm -hmm. All of that started in 2002 with these great trials, the great name trials, the breathing not properly BNP trials <laughs> that came out in the New England Journal and in circulation in 2002. And they really demonstrate the significant utility of a BNP or an NT pro BNP level in diagnosing heart failure in the emergency room and in the inpatient setting. And so it's really those studies that lead to all of this, like serial checking of BNPs. What's the discharge BNP at dry weight? Like person comes into the ER, here's another BNP we're going to check. Um, but they really do show that having this BNP measurement improves the clinician's ability to diagnose acute decompensated heart failure and directly leads to faster and improved management of that condition. So I think that was really neat. And am I, am I wrong? I thought that the literature said that good for diagnosis, but not good to guide therapy is that still the is that still the case i think now the current practices i know is that we're not checking serial bnps have you ever seen a low bnp level in a dialysis patient <laughs> Uh, rarely. I'm, I'm shaking my head no no everybody's shaking their head and i'm sure that those folks were excluded from these trials yeah and i don't know if i've seen stable ones though and it's kept me from having to go in to dialyze them at night yeah, but are they like it's seventy five thousand, and then I look, and it's like always seventy five thousand. But I've never made a, a clinical decision based on that. They're always high. They don't. They don't seem to go down when you when you dialyze them. I I I've well, and these natriuretic peptides. These are small peptides. These should be filtered by the kidney just fine, right? They're twenty six amino mm -hmm. acids. I mean, these things are their their handling is could be dependent on GFR. Yeah, in general, I, I tend to be very skeptical of BNP levels in hospitalized patients with CKD, AKI, or ESRD. I, I've, sometimes we tend to look at, okay, let's look at the number in this admission respect to a baseline. Well, four years ago, we have a level, but what if the patient developed diastolic dysfunction throughout those last four years? You know, we don't really know what the baseline level is. And and it hasn't been well demonstrated. I think it's uh, tested. It's hard to use in, in, in our patient population. And, and some of that depends on whether you're checking a BNP, which is more stable in lower GFR, or an NT pro BNP, which is just crazy high in everyone with CKD. But yeah, I think there was a definite, like, we don't know anything about these hormones, to these are the greatest things since sliced bread in diagnosing heart failure, to they're part of our diagnostic assessment for the diagnosis of acute decompensated heart failure but certainly in the context of clinical judgment and, and other factors. In the, the last section before he goes on to prostaglandins, he's, he mentions that these may be useful, AMP and BMP, as measures for uh, asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction. Now, you know, 20 years later, with hindsight, 
Turns out that's not how we're using them. We're really using them just for uh, acute decompensated heart failure. It was not a replacement for ejection fraction or any other kind of measure of heart failure. <laughs> okay. The last ANP mimic is the C-type uh, natriuretic peptide. It comes from the kidney. Burton Rose lays down a marker and says, unclear significance. Any thoughts on uh, C-type uh, natriuretic peptide? Yeah, I think that significance is still unclear. We can move on. Still unclear. Some things have not changed. That's right. <laughs> when Josh does the reboot in 20 years, he can... God. <laughs> okay. Prostaglandins. These are uh, products of arachidonic acid metabolism. Uh, he says he wants to focus in on just on just uh, a two of them, right? PGE2 and prostacyclin are the ones he says a lot of them. A lot of these have importance, but these are the two that he wanted to focus in. He said they're kind of produced... Uh, throughout the kidney, he points specifically to the glomerular endothelium, the vascular endothelium, the medullary and cortical collecting duct as areas where prostaglandin synthesis occurs, and that he focuses in that these prostaglandins are rapidly metabolized. So there's really no systemic effect that this is all kind of local production and then local utilization and then it disappears. And that these are primarily uh, vasodilators. And what we see in areas where angiotensin 2 or norepinephrine or vasopressin or endothelium cause vasoconstriction, they also stimulate the production of prostaglandin as kind of a counter-regulatory vasodilation to prevent uh, unopposed uh, vasoconstriction. I mean, it's kind of an amazing, when you think about it, you've got this uh, system that's going to, you know, want to raise your blood pressure and angiotensin and has local effects in the kidney, but you don't want it to, di- you don't want it to constrict the afferent arterial. That would be very bad in this situation. So you've got prostaglandins here to help you prevent that and dilate the afferent arterial while you're still constricting, you know, generally for blood pressure and constricting the efferent arterial. So it's really pretty clever, actually. And it works out really well from this local, you know, local production and, you know, handles very organ specific uh, roles for these prostaglandins, I suspect. So he, he talks, uh, Burton Rose talks about that uh, prostaglandins stimulate renin and the, so that NSAIDs will then block renin. And then that results in increases in potassium through a hyporenin-hypoaldo mechanism, which was kind of different than what I had thought about. I always thought that the hyperkalemia that we thought we see through NSAIDs was due to drops in GFR and changes in sodium handling and to be focused specifically on uh, renin's, renin's effect causing decreases in aldosterone was news to me. I thought that was interesting. For me, reading the whole prostaglandin section, all I could think about was the effects of NSAIDs and and how those, you know, it was, it, I, I couldn't get, take off my clinician glasses. It was all about, oh, so what if you block this? But I, yeah, but I think that this is the part that is um, what makes this book so helpful because so many of our patients take NSAIDs and a lot of the times, you know, patients will come in and you'll detect these slight abnormalities like, oh, the potassium is just a little bit of like, okay, it's 5.2 or like he talks about in the next section, like even a little hyponatremia. And when you do a thorough history, all that you end up finding is, finding is that these patients take NSAIDs. And so for me now, this, it's just, I think these two paragraphs in this in page 195 talking about the renin secretion and the antagonism of ADH effect is, are, are really key. And, and I refer back to this quite a bit when, whenever I see this clinically. And granted, it is true that you more, more of these effects are exaggerated when you see patients who have a, also a little bit of an AKI. Leticia why, Leticia, why don't you talk about the ADH effect? What's going on there? 
Yeah. So basically what it's saying is that um, when the the ADH does increase uh, the production of prostaglandins, but then when you... ADH uh, stimulates the production of prostaglandins. Yes. Okay. And yeah, this is what he says here. But then when you take NSAIDs and you remove that inhibitory um, prostaglandin effect, then you have increased activity of ADH. And so um, because you have this increased activity of ADH, then you have, but essentially you get a water retention that then leads to hyponatremia. Tiny bit of, a tiny bit of SADH in other words. Yes, you exactly. <laughs> but but you have to have a little bit of SADH. So, which and, is so NSAIDs are going to, he says they're going to increase, your, they're going to stimulate ADH. You're going to increase your urinosmolality. Yes, and then, so lead to that water reabsorption and drop the serum sodium levels. But he does have this caveat that usually it's in the in the in the context of a little bit of SADH. Yeah, I don't. Has anybody seen that clinically? Or I don't know that I would notice it. You know, these patients have a lot of things going on and they take a lot of medications. But I don't think I've ever personally identified a, a drop in sodium from a from a non-steroidal. But I, I probably missed it. No, no. I th- I think it's because it's always multifactorial. It, I I think it's probably. To some extent, similar to how often do we see perenal azotemia with an NSAID. Healthy individuals take NSAIDs uh, every day. They don't develop a rise in creatinine because of this vasomotor effect of constriction of the afferent arterioles, you know. But patients that have some sort of prostaglandin-dependent physiological state or a high ADH state in the case of, of the hyponatemia effect, they depend so much on prostaglandin to keeping them check. Right, they have a lot of sympathetic nervous system activation, a lot of angiotensin two activation, like a cirrhotic or a volume depleted patient. You inhibit prostaglandin that is defending them from that state. Boom, they develop uh, vasomotor AKI. If you have a patient with ADH, a high ADH state, like uh, Lady said, an SIDH patient or a, or cirrhotics and you throw a little bit of a prostaglandin inhibition that is defending them, boom, the hyponatremia can get worse, the AKI can get, uh, the renal function uh, uh, falls down. Um, so yeah, it's uh, other, the, outside of those uh, physiological or pathological states, uh, NSAIDs are pretty safe. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, I always talk to the residents about non-steroidals and say, you know, I could take gobs and gobs and nothing's going to happen to me because I, everything else works. Everything, you know, I'm, I'm, my heart works. I've got a good GFR and I don't have liver failure. I don't have anything else going on. You know, you don't, don't see those effects, either AKI or hyperkalemia if everything else is good. But if you've got something else going on, you've got tubular defect, your pre-renal, so your distal sodium delivery is low. You're more likely to see hyperkalemia. If you've got CKD, you're more likely to see hyperkalemia. The perfect storm is the patients that come in, they're on a loop diuretic, and they're also on an ACE inhibitor. And, and that may be very good for their heart failure, but it may, it may not... In, you know, it may not always be the best thing for their GFR, depending on where they are and their volume status and the startling curve, et cetera. But then they put take a non-steroidal because they have a headache or something. And bingo, you know, then you realize what the role prostaglandins play, which is exactly your point. They're not really probably playing that big a role in, in health, but certainly, and we didn't evolve for cirrhosis or heart failure, but we did evolve for volume depletion. And and so they could play a very big role. And, and we don't, you know, the body doesn't know if, 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 the, if the GFR is low because of volume depletion or heart failure. It's just, that's the concept of effective, effective circulating volume. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, we see this a lot, but, uh, but, but not by itself. And I thought it was really interesting, and I'd never heard this before, the net effect of plasma potassium rises by 0.2 in normal subjects. I never really thought that there'd even be any impact of uh, 
of potassium excretion from non-steroidals, but up to 0.6 in patients with renal insufficiency. But, you know, when I was, a, I'll tell you another little story, a little another anecdote. I was a, uh, probably just as attending maybe my second or third year out when, when uh, ibuprofen became, over, or, you know, over the counter. And that was a big deal. The FDA had to make a very big decision. I mean, can you imagine the time when you couldn't just go to the store and buy that stuff and everybody took Tylenol and aspirin for pain? So one of the, one of the news anchors, one of the news stations wanted to interview somebody. You know, my boss pointed to me and said, you know, you should talk to him. So they came to the office and it happened that this news anchor was, had PKD in the family, ADPKD in the family. So that anchor was very, was kind of a very renal centric uh, person and really wanted to talk about this. And so they're putting me on the spot. They're saying, you know, well, what do you think? Uh, you're a nephrologist. Is this safe? And I'm thinking, you know, well, the last thing I want to do is tell them that, that you know, tell everybody in Chicago, at least whatever, that this is, this is not a concern. But the truth of the matter was the FDA to prove it. And so I had to kind of dance around the whole thing and say, well, you know, you, they're probably safe, but if there's any question, you should talk to your doctor, which I, you know, which is kind of ridiculous if we think about that now. I mean, certainly people with, with, with medical conditions, but that, that this isn't going out to medical, this is going out to you know, everybody in the city that has a headache and wants to take a non steroidal not going to call their doctor and say, is it okay for me to take 200 milligrams of ibuprofen? Not like literally just a young kid at the time. So it was a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, I got a lot of phone calls from high school friends saying, uh, you know, oh, you made the big time. You're on the news. So. <laughs> Is that how you picked up the Bulls gig? Oh, I got the Bulls gig because I'm so, uh, I'm such a great athlete. Because you're so athletic. <laughs> okay. I think going back to the point that, that JC and Roger had made there, that really it requires some degree of underlying illness to have the sensitive effect be clinically noticeable. You see that in figure 617, where they give people with cirrhosis NSAIDs and see how they do. And if you look at the methods, they give them two grams of ibuprofen to see what happens. And you just imagine trying to get this past it, uh, like a, a safety board now to like get your study planned. I have 12 people with cirrhosis, and I'd like to give them each two grams of ibuprofen and just check their GFR and see what happens. And it goes from 70 to 30, and they already have cirrhosis. So it's like, it really does do bad things to people who are sick. We believe yeah. you. We don't need to do I it again. I mean, even the story, well, not, not story, but like the data that shows that um, taking NSAIDs in patients who have already like uh, angina or coronary artery disease, right? Like there's, um, they talk about how it could worsen um, uh, acute ischemia. So the interesting thing is how we now have a lot of uh, longitudinal data on people with CKD. I'm, I'm really thinking of there was a, a publication last year on the CRIC database looking at patients that were taking NSAIDs versus not. So these are all patients with CKD. We have very accurate measures of GFR. We have it over a long period of time and how little. Now they were being compared to opioids. So, which is, I think, an important thing because a lot of data say, you know, looking at the dangers of of NSAIDs compared to people that are not taking NSAIDs. And now what you really have are two different populations. You have people that have chronic pain versus health, which is probably an inappropriate comparison. And so I like this comparison in the CRIC database where they looked at opioid users versus NSAID users, users. And, you know, quite honestly, remember the NKF came out saying people with CKD yes. should avoid NSAIDs and should take opioids for their pain that can't be otherwise controlled. Like that was, they were pushing chronic kidney disease people to do that. And when the CRIC people looked at that data, the people that took opioids did a lot worse. It wasn't a subtle difference. Like they did show that the NSAIDs were actually quite safe. My feeling is we've really given NSAIDs a bad 
a bad name in uh, CKD that's probably undeserved. The, the CRIC study, your, the CRIC database is looking at people with CKD. And when we're sitting here talking about people who are vulnerable to this kind of damage, we're talking about heart failure and liver failure, not necessarily CKD, like from hypertension or diabetes. You know, they're hemodynamically labile. Excellent point, Anna. I think that's, I think it's, and I think that's, that's the type of nuance that we need to use. Generally, if you take a look at CKD recommendations, they don't have that nuance. They just say no NSAIDs, right? Right. Across the board. And uh, it's amazing how well my patients have int- internalized that advice. All the time, my patients are telling me, well, I don't Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I, don't take I, only, take I only take Tylenol because my doctor told me it's bad for my kidneys. Uh, and it's, you know, I'm like, well, not that bad. And I, I find that I'm constantly, you know, especially, I mean, I get patients that come in here that they talk to me about how much worse their life is in terms of their arthritis because they can't take an NSAID. And I was like, yeah, you probably can take the NSAID. So, Joel, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I hear it all the time. And, and, and it's not just cardiologists. I've seen other nephrologists. They say, you know, you are not allowed to take a single NSAID. And their life is terrible. The quality of life is terrible. And it's not supported by the data, as you said. Granted, if your potassium is running high, if you're in, on a lot of medication, then you have to be more careful. But we're, you know, 80% of these people, they're just, they've got mild CKD and they'll probably be fine. And I, you know, I don't say, I tell them don't take, you know, 400 milligrams three times a day, but you know, what would make your life better? Oh, I could take it, you know, two pills a day or every other day. I say, that's fine. And, uh, you you know, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think we have done it a very big disservice. And of course, you know, in the in the setting of what happened with the opioid crisis, it's even that's a whole another topic. This is a very important aspect to emphasize uh, for trainees in particular because we have this reputation in nephrology that we are you know antagonize entities all the time. And let's just put the potassium hyponatremia electrolyte issues on the side for a second. Think about just changes in kidney function. Uh, NSAIDs can do inter- can cause interstitial nephritis. We know that, but that's not really common. That's a sort of a rare effect. Uh, I see one case every three, four years, personally. Uh, so it's not that is not the evil. Uh, what else can happen with NSAIDs? Well, if you take NSAIDs in the old days of so phenacetine people, we could get papillary necrosis. Okay, that's extremely rare, and you're not going to miss that. Patients are going to have gross hematuria, clinically pretty pretty uh, dramatic uh, presentation for the most part. And I think that was limited to phenacetine. Yeah, I don't phenacetine. think that was ever really yeah. demonstrated with any of the. But the there were some right? reports of combination. That yeah, there was. Kind of, but there, it's an interesting that disease of papillary necrosis like i've seen one or two in my career like it's gone right it's It's gone gone. and i and i wonder is it gone because we no longer do a ivps (laughs) and we don't pick it up on ultrasound that our imaging modality changed and so that finding no longer found yeah but it could be that's a theory i don't know sponge kidney gone too are are pretty decent uh catching that but yeah you're right it's a very rare diagnosis these days but then I was trying to get this. Okay, we went through those AIN and papillary necrosis, very situation. This is those are not reasons why we are concerned about NSAIDs. But it comes down to the hemodynamic AKI. Yes, the hemodynamic AKI. So when somebody presents a patient to us in clinic and say, "Oh, why does this patient have chronic disease? Oh, just uh, heavy use of NSAIDs." And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, let's 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 go back here. And where is the data that clearly shows? The heavy use of NSAIDs is the cause. If you biopsy this patient, you want to have a lesion that corresponds to that. There isn't. So no, it, there's not. It is not. So it's all about 
we are concerned because we know that our patients are vulnerable to get AKI on top of the CKD and they end up in a hospital. That's right. And we have, we have extrapolated from these episodes of AKI that we've all seen, right? We've all seen that post-operative patient that gets, you know, Tortal. ketorolac and pops their kidneys and they go into AKI and we, and we extrapolate that to say, shouldn't take it in CKD, which is probably an overcall. Though, as Anna pointed out, there are individuals in that group of people that CKD, the cirrhotics, the heart failure that's really been pushing hard on directs, where it probably is super important to avoid that. Yeah, and those but, who take AZ inhibitors and ARBs. You know, when you take it in combination, that NSAIDs could cause hemodynamic effects, could cause AIN. But what about the minimal change of the protocytopathies that NSAIDs could induce? I don't know. I just... I'm, I don't want to play devil's advocate, but sometimes I just wonder, like, you know, I am kind of, I'm, I'm definitely to blame. I'm one of those that is like very much worried about patients, especially with really low GFR taking NSAIDs, like even for like, you know, for a gout flare or something, because they don't need something else. And so I, I'm just going to justify that I still think that we should be careful with. Plus, Letty, there is that concept of people really do think binarily, like about things being safe or not safe. So, and like, you can say just take 200, but there are always people who, if it's over the counter, it's safe. And if you just take one, you can take a handful. So like. I think we're bad about telling our patients like a sick day protocol. They'll, they'll take the NSAID, but then they'll like, but, but I'm going to be a good patient and I'm going to take my Also AC take my Like, let's say they have terrible diarrhea and they're hypotensive and they're like, I know I'm not supposed to take the NSAID, but I'm going to take that, but I'm still going to be good and take my ACE inhibitor. JC, JC, you loved table six, four. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think we already covered it, to be okay. honest. Uh, but it's a, it's a good yeah. one to kind of have. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, for for the readers or the listeners, uh, Table 6-4 summarizes very nicely uh, all the potential complications with NSAIDs in, uh, the, in the kidney and electrolytes. Yeah, I think if you're someone who is capable of putting pen to paper in this book without guilt then that margin is a nice place to put NSAID leads to X as a result of mechanism in that paragraph. So that's what I'm trying to gear up to do. And the, and the one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is an, a, a really important one is the patient who has uh, diuretic resistant edema, screen them for NSAIDs. That's a definite finding. And, he, and Burton Rose talks about that NSAIDs will limit the diuretic response. Okay, are we done with prostaglandins? Does anybody want to go any deeper on this? Okay, hormonal regulation of calcium and phosphate. Burton Rose opens up Pandora's box of nephrology. Let let the record reflect the face. We all just <laughs> I was going to say a collective yeah. shudder yeah. ran through the I am not in agreement with this, this hating on calcium phosphorus. I actually think that I get super excited when we grab a hypercalcemia case and pull it away from endocrinology and get it consulted to nephrology. They are super interesting to work up. They're interesting cases. I really, I really enjoy them. Um, I don't know that anybody hates it. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not that we hate have it. You not, have I you not been reading the WhatsApp? I, but it's, it's so intimate. It, you feel like you climbed into... I don't know if you've ever had the experience of like trying on a something at a store and you find this top and you think it's really cute and then you get it like halfway on and you can't get your way out of it and suddenly you're just like desperate to get out of it and you're stuck inside this thing and you don't know which way is the front and you don't know how you're ever going to get it. That's how I feel every time I start or, learning about it. Or you look like garbage. Yeah. yeah, you're like I just it's I get so deep into it and then I just start looking around like I, I think there's like that 
for the first five minutes, I learn more and more each time I learn it. And then after that, it's all just downhill and I get more confused. So it's not that I don't. Yeah, but yeah. That, that's just you're working your way through it. Like, <laughs> it's that, a process. No, I mean, that's it's a process, right? <laughs> yeah. No, listen, I, I think that this physiology is so great. Like in, in the way that calcium, phosphorus interact and PTH. And like, I do think that this is really fascinating physiology. <laughs> it's just so darn hard to treat. Like it's just and, and this is where I think the frustration comes from that. A hundred percent. Yeah. It well, and let's let's not give a pass to the science that this that nephrology has bungled clinical. We we have guidelines on guidelines and no solid data to base those guidelines on. And you know, I remember when uh, Sharon Mo was put in charge of the KDGO guidelines, and she came out with a barnstorming of an editorial saying, when we write these guidelines, we're only going to consider studies that do this and only look at, uh, have end outcomes and have to have this many patients. And we're going to look at hard clinical outcomes and then absolutely retreated from that position and put together guidelines that looked a lot like uh, the Kadoki guidelines that they were meant to replace and were not that different. Like she walked back from that uh, a pretty strong statement about how they were going to go about doing the KDGO guidelines. And I, and I think the reason was her KDGO guidelines were going to be a pamphlet because there was no data to base these guidelines on. And she was like, ah, this is not what they want. They want a real guide. They want something that's a little bit deeper than that. The idea that we've had phosphorus binders for 30 years, we still don't have data that they do anything for our patients, that we have had vit- prescription vitamin, semi-synthetic vitamin Ds that all, they were approved based on only on their ability to lower PTH and no one knows if lowering PTH is good. Like it's it's kind of, it's maddening. It's, it really is what it is. And also we've had a um, an epidemic of calciphylaxis and we don't, you know, for all we know, that's not even, that could be related to what we're doing. It could be all iatrogenic. Could be iatrogenic. And this is, on the, this is on the back of the iatrogenic dias- disaster of aluminum, right? Like it's, we've, we have, looks like we have been harming or yeah, yeah, probably, pro- probably, well, certainly we're harming patients with aluminum. I think we may have may have been harming people with calcium. Maybe, maybe not. We didn't harm people with sinicalcid, but we didn't help them either. And we act, that's one of the rare areas that we have good RCT data that shows that we didn't harm people with sinicalcid, but didn't really help them. So I think I, Letty, I absolutely share your frustration. You know, it's a it's a major failure in the science of nephrology. But to clear up something, you know, Joel, you said you know, you love hypercalcemia, and and you know, I think when 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 Josh pointed out that we all grunted, it's it wasn't about hypercalcemia or hypophosphatemia. It's really about renal osteodystrophy and what you brought up in the last five minutes of you know dogma with no data, and uh, you know the the amount of time people spend talking to our patients about their diets and taking their binders with almost no proof that it even helps them. That's the real issue here that that's so frustrating that gives us makes us groan. But you know, as was brought up, the the physiology of calcium is really interesting. The only reason enjoy you like hypercalcemia because it takes you to talk about the loop of Henley it has nothing to do with both. <laughs> yes it does I, I completely agree it's a, it's, a, it's a moment to talk about some really cool renal physiology absolutely agree and this is another part of the book that is a bit embarrassed by the advancement of the field that we have an entire new hormone. You ever have that moment where you're like, I thought we were done discovering hormones. I thought we had them all a long ago, but no, we are still discovering new hormones. We have FGF23, we have Clotho, and how they interact. And, and 
none of this, all of this comes out really, or the beginning, you know, Miles Wolf's work on this really begins just a year or two after this book comes out, uh, has really moved the field significantly forward. Though it's interesting seeing, you can see the threads that Miles Wolf was going to pull on in this section of the chapter. It's kind of fun to watch. Here's like, uh, Burton Rose had identified areas where like, there's something going on right here, and and Miles Wolf is going to walk in there and, and uh, explain it with another hormone. Well, and that's what's cool. It's it's not wrong. So my suggestion would be, at least from what I did that helped, I thought a lot was pause this chapter, um, sort of like hold the book, you know, three feet away and just skim it really quickly. Then read that Miles Wolf paper that will, I'm sure we'll link in the show notes and then read it again, kind of inserting those, interdigitating those two things together. And it just makes more sense. It's not like you have to correct what you read. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that it makes it make more sense. So it's nice. So the regulation of calcium and phosphate requires changes in intestinal, bone, and renal function. So it's just kind of, it's it's one of these kind of interesting things where it's this stuff is so important and difficult that it really requires balancing the three different uh, organ systems. And it kind of embarrass it kind of shows the arbitrariness of when we create these organ systems, right? Like they, these organ systems cross over and communicate and have to interact with each other all the time. And that he points out importantly. Unlike sodium and potassium, which are fully absorbed from the intestinal tract, here, calcium and phosphate are not. And it's also a point of regulation, which, um, you know, Homer Smith always talks about our indiscriminate GI tracts absorbing everything. And he's like, well, not quite indiscriminate when it comes to uh, calcium and phosphate in this case. Did I, did I get that right? That was Homer. I said Homer. I didn't yeah. say Homer Smith. <laughs> did I? Yeah. No. No, no. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> From fish to idiot. Homer Simpson by Homer Simpson. I have <laughs> fish to idiot. <laughs> Wait a second. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, but that, that absorption is vitamin D dependent. So I think one thing about vitamin D, you know, part of its synthesis is in the kidney, right? And so that's part of the reason why why we like it and think it's fun. Vitamin D24, OH vitamin D is hydroxylated by 1-alpha-hydroxylase into 125-OH vitamin D, which then is later hydroxylated again by 24-alpha-hydroxylase into an inactive 124-25-OH vitamin D. That 24-alpha-hydroxylase is actually upgraded by FGF23, so uh, which is kind of one of the newer advancements in this book. And so not only is vitamin or is the kidney important for active vitamin D production, it is also a site that is important to turn off all the active vitamin D so you don't absorb tissue calcium. So the FGF23 is going to inactivate 125. Upregulate 124, so it'll inactivate the 125-OH. Gotcha. Those numbers are not confusing at all. <laughs> it is terribly confusing. Absolutely. Okay. It's not confusing enough because they have numbers and then they have names. You know, sometimes it's choleic this and calcium for all that. And, and some of the 24 and 24, 25, it's terribly confusing. And then we just call them activated vitamin D just sometimes just to be like extra awful to learners. Thanks, guys. Yeah. yeah. And on top of that, we call 125 calcitriol and that we are only naming two of the hydroxy groups and... That's just because, you know, colocalciferol has already one group. So we're assuming that and then naming one and 25 spots. 
which I think is just bonkers. So calcidiol, is that a thing? Is that 25 OH vitamin D? Yes. And then <laughs> calcitriol is 125 OH vitamin D. And the inactive one is 12425 OH vitamin D. Is that calciquadrol or is that cal... <laughs> That's what it is. It's calciquadrol. Calcitetrol. My goodness. Calcitetrol. That is much better. Okay. Yes. Unless you're playing Scrabble and you need to get rid of a Q, you know? <laughs> so then he talks about how calcium circulates. He says that it's 40% the bound to albumin. It's 15% complex to anions, which really is citrate, and then 45% ionized. And then he says that uh, phosphorus circulates as phosphate, either HPO4 2 minus or H2PO4 1 minus, and they are at a 4 to 1 ratio at normal physiologic pH. And they are regulated by PTH and vitamin D. And then I love this sentence, another one, the physiologic role of other hormones, such as calcitonin and estrogens in the regulations of calcium and phosphate balance are incompletely understood and will not be discussed further, (laughs) period. And then reference 254, as if you want to know why we're not talking about it? Well, you have to look it up in reference 254. That's why we're not talking about it. Okay. And then he goes on to talk about PTH secreted by the parathyroid glands. It's in response to hypocalcemia, the world's best protein. What detects the calcium? The calcium sensing receptor. The calcium sensing receptor. I love setting up residents. I'm like, you have one guess. What does the calcium sensing receptor do? They never get it wrong. Put them on the spot. Point to them. They're 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 awesome. That's Love that. Stuff. And then, there, but there is an interesting bit. He talks about polymorphisms in the genes that code for the cal- calcium sensing receptor underlie the variability of calcium in normal subjects. Which I, I, you know, we always talk about. Oh, some people have a low calcium, some people have a high calcium, and we think about that with all ions. I never really think about it. But here, he's really specifically saying, "Hey, we think there's actually changes in the calcium sensing receptor." And then he points to, at the most extreme, an inactivating mutation would result in hypercalcemia, and we see that with um, hyper. Hypocalcuric hypercalcemia. Familial, yeah. And and so if folks are interested in how my boss and how Melanie's boss got his start, those references 257 to 259 are Martin's po- yeah, Martin Pollock's it. postdoc papers um, when he identifies these calcium sensing receptor mutants in the Seidman lab. Um, so that's really like the beginning of renal genetics in a hormone setting, which I think is really cool. And they're beautiful, classic papers. He's nice. not just saying that because he has to go to work tomorrow. He's not just April 1. He does lots of cool stuff. Josh, don't worry. I'm not going to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> we might name the whole chapter that. We're, we're, we got your back, okay? Thank you. I need that promotion, guys. Okay, PTH acts to increase the serum calcium in three ways. It stimulates bone reabsorption, releasing calcium and phosphate. And he points out that that requires the presence of a permissive amount of active vitamin D. It increases calcium resorption in the gut, and that is via the action of calcitriol. And it increases active calcium resorption in the kidney. And he points to the connecting segment and distal tubule as the site of activity and then refers you to some other page to get the details, the molecular details of that. Um, and then he talks about PTH uh, influencing phosphorus metabolism. Again, you're going to increase phosphorus release uh, from the bone when you metabolize the bone. You're going to increase phosphorus reabsorption from the GI tract. And that, so those are the same as what you have with calcium. 
working to increase that. But then you have the opposite effect of the kidney where the PTH increases calcium reabsorption. It decreases phosphorus reabsorption or increases phosphorus wasting. It's really remarkable to me because, uh, you know, it tells you how important calcium must be that you have all these ways of, of protecting your calcium level if it, if it drops. And they're all, you know, it works in the gut and the bone and, and, uh, and the kidney that it's very, very strong. But the side effect of that is all this phosphorus as well, which you don't necessarily want. So lo and behold, PTH gets rid of the phosphorus in the kidney. It's really brilliant to me. What he says is he says that, you know, it's not really clear from these situations what the net effect on PTH on phosphorus is going to be. Is it going to increase the phosphorus? Is it going to be phosphorus neutrals or going to decrease the phosphorus? And we know from clinical examples, if your kidney function is normal and you get hyperparathyroidism, you get hypophosphatemia, that the renal wasting exceeds the loss, the, the gain of phosphorus from the gut and the gain of phosphorus from the bone. I don't know if other folks learned this, but PTH is short for phosphate trashing hormone. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I like well, that. Josh, that's not what it stands for. It stands for parathyroid hormone. I'm not sure what <laughs> medical school you go to. What are they teaching you at Northwestern? <laughs> it drives me nuts when people call it parathormone. Has anybody? Uh. Hey, Anna, that's how it's called in Spanish, is parathormone. That's adorable with an accent, but in, <laughs> with, without, not so much. It's just, just it lazy. Makes some, like, super weird horror movie of like parathormonal influences or something. <laughs> yes, you know? I yeah. do not like it. And then this other fact, I love this. This was my favorite, might have been the favorite part of the whole chapter was how PTH is regulated by acid base, that acidemia stimulates PTH, and that's going to increase urinary phosphate wasting titratable acid. This is what allows you to bind up hydrogen secretion and clear hydrogen from the body. You need to have phosphate in the urine, and you convert uh, phosphate to the H2PO4, which is so cool that this... Met- and and by metabolizing the bone, by absorbing uh, by reabsorbing uh, calcium and phosphorus from the bone, that is a, another way of buffering hydrogen. And so this acidemia stimulates PTH, which allows you to neutralize the acidemia. You know, it's interesting because we, you know, you always tell, I always teach that you've got a, a fixed amount of titratable acid. And the, right. way we, the way we handle an increased acid load is through ammonium. We increase ammonium, ammonia, and then for ammonium excretion. But, you know, I never really thought about that, that you actually have this other way of increasing, you can actually increase titratable acid as well. At uh, the that, cost that, of your bones, right? That's, I mean, that's it's not right. You know, but bone is a reservoir. I mean, there is, if you think of it as a bone. And th- that's interesting because I've never, I always have thought about, never thought about acidosis that. causing bone like loss of mineralization just by direct effect. I've never thought of that as a strategic maneuver to Mm -hmm. titrate the acid. I always think of it as being, you know, just plunking your bones in some, you know, vinegar and that's just what happens. And and I want to emphasize, you think of it that way because that's how we all teach it. Right, 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 right. right, (laughs) Right, I don't think, that's how I've always taught it. And and it's it's actually way cooler than that. I agree. I love that. I I wonder if it's also, also, uh, I wonder if it's also connected to this, to the notion of animal protein intake in patients with nephrolithiasis. You you have an acid load that's going to trigger PTH release, bone reassertion, and potentially uh, more increase in, in calcium and hypercalceria. I, I'm not sure if it's a stretch, but I see a link there that pro, animal protein restriction is an acid load. Bone buffers are required. You mobilize calcium. 
Uh, and that's something that you don't want to have in a, in a stone patient. You don't want to have a hypercalcemic yeah. state. I think there are some studies about that, though. I was going to yeah. say, and this is one of the few areas where they actually have endpoint data, right? There was this big Italian study where they had uh, restricted animal protein, and they were able to reduce recurrent stone formation in patients with hypercalciuria mm-hmm. if on this low animal protein diet. And the, I think the other good uh, example of the connection between calcium phosphorus balance and, and, uh, and uh, bone health, I guess, and acidosis is in RTAs and kids, uh, because one of the clinical manifestations of children with renal tubular acidosis is growth uh, retardation. They get uh, trouble with the bone health, they don't grow. And I think it's probably related to the mobilization of, of minerals to, to manage the chronic acidosis. It happens, all, that happens in kids with proximal and distal and, in, you know, RTA. And in proximal RTA, you're actually in, you're in steady state. Uh, you're not in a positive hydrogen balance. You're just living at a lower bicarb and a lower pH. So that's true of distal RTA where you'd be using it, using up your bone. But I think it's just an acidotic state alone without being in a positive hydronine balance, which is again what proximal RTA would be. But, and it's a problem because, you know, you want them to grow. So you've got to give them tons of bicarb and they just spill it all out. So you're giving them all this bicarb just to try to get a higher bicarb level so they can still grow. I mean, I'm not a pediatric nephrologist, but it's got to be a pretty difficult problem to deal with. Well, hopefully the book called Clinical Physiology of Acid-Based and Electrolyte Disorders will cover RTA eventually. (laughs) (laughs) You'd kind of breeze by this real quick, the mechanism by which PTH enhances enhances calcium transport. Uh, And that was something I thought it was actually kind of cool. He like refers back to this other page. 92. He does. Did you you go back to that page? I I did. did, But he doesn't actually cover the mechanism there. (laughs) He doesn't. And so this is like a... (laughs) bait and switch Bud Rose move where he's like go look at page 92 I promise it's there and it's like we're in book club we probably covered that already don't worry about it check the old episode and then it's like it wasn't there either so I, I did want to cover this like real briefly about how PTH leads to increased calcium reabsorption and actually comes back to the first episode when we talked about tight junctions um, that in the tight, <laughs> such a the tight, the answer. Again, he I was going to make things. it about tight junctions. I have three things I'm going to talk about over and over and over again in this podcast. Glomeruli, toad bladders, and tight junctions. So I've already hit them all once, and we're just going to keep going and going and going <laughs> For tight junctions of the thick ascending limb, they contain this one particular Claudin, Claudin 14, which normally blocks calcium reabsorption in the thick ascending limb. PTH binds to its PTH receptor in the thick ascending limb. That leads to down-regulation of the transcription and translation of Claudin-14, which allows for more leaky tight junctions to calcium and calcium alone, allowing for more calcium reabsorption in the thick ascending limb. Okay, so the argument is there's... There are PTH there are receptors, PTH receptors in the thick ascending in the TAL limb mm-hmm. that change the nature of the tight junctions. Correct, and they were they essentially Very specifically they increase the calcium permeability, make them more permeable to calcium by getting rid of this one particular calcium excluding clot. So I just thought that was cool, and it's not on page ninety two. It's not. Is that enough, Josh? That was it. That's all I had. Okay. Sorry. Okay. It was a short little diversion. No apology cool. necessary. It was good. It was okay. good. It was good. Okay. Vitamin D. Fat-soluble steroid. It's You get it from our diet or it's synthesized in the skin and liver. It's activated. Uh, 25-OHD is activated in the kidney to form the 125. And that the 24-25 is the inactive metabolite, just like Amy was describing before. And then he drops this line to me. He says that this occurs in the proximal tubule in animals 
and in the distal nephron in humans. I had never heard that before. I always thought it was a proximal tubule thing. Is it? Does this hold up? Are we still thinking that it's distal nephron? Yeah, so there was a Jason study that was done. I think we talked about it before. I'll put it in. But they looked at the level of 1-alpha-hydroxylase protein, and they actually mm-hmm. they found it both in the proximal tubule and the distal tubular cells, but actually the concentration was higher in the distal tubular cells. So I think he mentions here, like, we think we all, because I had been taught it was a proximal tubule too, but I think we're, I think we're wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. Whoever taught you was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and that super importantly, this activation of 25-OHD also occurs in lymphocytes, Hence the association of lymphoma with hypercalcemia and in macrophages, hence the association of granulomatous diseases, fillin, which was your favorite, also causes hypercalcemia. So you get this dysregulated or autonomous uh, activation of, of 125 vitamin D in these extra renal tissues. Uh, and then he even, he even mentions that that hypercalcemia may protect against tuberculosis. There's a throwaway line there, an explanation for why this may be the case. Our coevolution with the tuberculosis, uh, mycobacterium. It's mycobacterium tuberculosis, but yeah. Okay. And then regulation of the formation of 125, it's stimulated by PTH and specifically hypophosphatemia. And that the 1-alpha-hydroxylase has a vitamin D binding region itself. So it inhibits its own production. Uh, low phosphate stimulates 1-alpha-hydroxylase. High phosphates inhibits 1-alpha-hydroxylase. And then, as Amy said, the 24-hydroxylation, uh, which inactivated the hormone, is stimulated by calcitriol itself. This is where FGF23 is, is super important, that FGF23 role levels rise as you get progressive CKD, and that it inhibits the production of 125 vitamin D. So both... FGF23 and PTH cause phosphaturia, but they have different effects on vitamin D, right? FGF23 inhibits the formation of vitamin D and PTH increases the formation of vitamin D. Fellowship, I was taught that the decreased renal mass was the reason that we had decreased 125 vitamin D. And it was this thing that was like, it didn't really make sense. Like we don't see decreases of anything else in the kidney at GFRs of 60, right? The kidney seems to be totally intact, except for here, there was what's going on. And it turned out that it didn't seem right because it wasn't right, that it wasn't a decrease in renal mass. It was much better tracking with these increases in FGF23 that seemed to track with phosphorus load. And not surprisingly, as you're having difficulty clearing the phosphorus load, you would increase this phosphaturic hormone. I, I feel like I'm the patron saint of trainees on this podcast. And someone was giving me a lecture the other day, like a like a chalk talk, actually on this whole like axis. And his very, very coarse, and obviously it's much more complicated than this, and please read all the materials that we link. But he described FGF23 as when someone's coming over and, and you get like five minutes and you realize there's crap everywhere. So you just like put it wherever you can, like under the bed, in the trash. He's like, that's FGF23 and phosphorus. It just just kind of wherever it can get rid of it or stow it away, it does. So I thought that was helpful as I was reading through all the papers to have some sort of framework. <laughs> so if that helps you. Oh yeah, FGFD3, I remember reading when uh, early days when uh, the work was being done, it was identified as, it was called a phosphatonin. There were some papers talking about <laughs> phosphatonins. We don't know what are the phosphatonins. And now FGF23 
is is one of them and it's uh, responsible of a phosphatoric effect as melanie said by inhibiting the sodium uh, phosphate co-transporter localized in the proximal tubule and it's an effect that is also caused by by pth right and it's important to think that the two primary effects it increases urinary phosphorus and decreases 125 both of those act to decrease the phosphorus right you're going to drop you're going to block its absorption and you're going to increase its excretion. Correct. And it's interesting uh, how the effect of FGF23 in promoting uh, phosphate urinary excretion, it's uh, very important as, as long as the patient still urinates. Uh, once the patient becomes anoric in an end-stage renal disease patient, uh, that effect doesn't becomes uh, you know, ir- irrelevant uh, for the most part. But in patients that they are still urinating, you can still promote some phosphorus excretion through that mechanism to protect against the uh, phosphorus retention or phosphorus accumulation. And, and of course, there's this entity completely outside chronic kidney disease, which is called tumor-induced osteomalacia, or also called oncogenic osteomalacia, where a, a cancer produces uh, uh, this this phosphatonin FGF23 in patients uh, waste phosphorus. Uh, very impressive c- clinical cases. I've seen watch. one case of that. Leticia, tell, tell us what, what, what does that look like? What happened? So basically this patient had persistent hypophosphatemia. He, he was being treated for um, his malignancy and now the whole point is that he had this persistent and it wasn't like just a little bit, uh, a, sl- a slight uh, decrease in phosphorus. I mean, the phosphorus was very, very low. Like um, less than, less than one less than one uh, to the point where he was actually not able to ambulate and he no matter how much he got repleted like it just he it kept dropping and we were consulted and the we did a 24-hour urine collection we looked at all these things and the urine phosphorus was through the roof like really through the roof and it was um it was a, a very difficult case to treat and the, so the first thing i think of with increased Urinary phosphorus and low serum phosphorus would be hyperparathyroidism. So you check the PTH and it is? Yeah, it should be low. Yeah. So it's suppressed. Okay. And so now you're like, okay, so why is the phosphorus being wasted? And wh- how do you make the diagnosis? You, can you do send a, an FGF23 level? Is that, is that yes. the, that's yeah. the diagnosis? And then how do you, how, what's the management strategy here? Remove the tumor. Yeah, just like cancer therapy. Although I did read there's some, because I had a case like this at Memorial Sloan, and there was um, some case reports about use of dipyramidal, like the antiplatelet agent, to help Mm -hmm. with this. I'm not sure the mechanism, but I mean, we tried it. I don't know. (laughs) I came off service, so I don't know what happened. But if anyone wants to look it up, I think it's interesting. Sometimes they're small tumors and they're not, you know, it's not like as metastatic lung cancer with hypercalcemia, it's, it's, sometimes they're very manageable, so other times they're not. But I, they're not very common. I've seen a couple of them. The other thing worth looking into is whether this patient had a lot of iron infusions because there's this ferric carboxymaltase apparently yes. can cause severe hypophosphatemia, and they think it might be by inhibiting FGF23 degradation. Metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. It, they're impressive. They're impressive hypophosphatemia. The, you read about the cases and the, it's pretty, it sounds like it's pretty bad. Yeah. And it lasts and for last, a long time. Yeah. Right. Months, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, it's like, 
my gosh. And that's right. after like two infusions a week apart. Like you'll have hypophosphatemia for months. Yeah. Yeah. It's not universal. It's idiosyncratic, right? And it's, it's, and it's only this formulation of iron, right? There's all these yeah. formulations of iron. It's only this one. Um, it's Yeah, it's weird. Great board question, but not very common. Yeah. So, so the clinical uh, as scenario, I guess, where you could sus- suspect this entity of uh, FGF23 driven phosphate wasting is a patient who has severe hypophosphatemia despite most of the times both oral and intravenous supplementation they remain hypophosphatemic you look at a urine phosphorus excretion and is as a fractional excretion phosphorus is very high which is completely wrong in a patient who has hypophosphatemia and most of the patients the kidney function is generally relatively normal and then uh, as, as you, Joel said, you got to think about PTH first and your PTH doesn't explain it because it's low or maybe within normal limits, but certainly not elevated. That's when you have to suspect uh, this entity and you order FGF 23 level. In my institution, it takes about seven days to come back. Uh, sometimes the cancer is already present. The patient already has a diagnosis. So the patient has germ cell line tumor. You already know that the high, there's a high pretest probability already. But sometimes patients don't have malignancy. And identifying this disorder prompts uh, the uh, diagnosis of, of cancer. I just, I found ours and uh, our, in our patient, it was very, very elevated. And actually, initially, yeah, his PTH was was just fine. Yeah, he it, he it did not do well, like in general, like he just didn't do, yeah, he didn't do well. But his FGF, as you saw, his FGF 23 was like through the roof. You know, the one thing that I'm surprised that he didn't talk about in terms of PTH was the role of magnesium with PTH. I thought is unusual because it's kind of a fun electrolyte thing. I think it's always tricky because we always hear high magnesium levels should lower your PTH, but then also really, really low magnesium levels can give you a low PTH as well. And so why does that happen? How can it have two different effects? So essentially, really high magnesium levels will bind the calcium sensing receptor as well. And so the body thinks that you have a lot of calcium, but really, it's just magnesium and so it so then you reduce your pth levels the second way is when your magnesium levels are very very low not just like one five one four like less than one so the calcium sensing receptor is bound to like a g coupled protein receptor and so when you have low magnesium levels the g alpha activity is increased and so that reduces the cyclic AMP cascade, and then you reduce the synthesis of PTH because your magnesium level is too low. Because we had a patient recently who was very hypocalcemic and hypomagnesemic from a loop diuretic. And I said, oh, don't worry, the PTH will be high because PTH's only role is to increase calcium. And it was low. And I was like, oh my gosh, why is it low? And it was because her serum magnesium was 0.8. So... Bud really hated divalent cations, I think, actually. It shows. <laughs> got so their we're thing. kind of getting that sense, yeah. If you look in the um, index, if you look up magnesium, it says, see also hypomagnesemia and, and proximal tubule, and there's a page number, and that's it. These cases, I had a patient with a um, PTHRP, and it's sort of similar story, and those are the real like curb your enthusiasm ones because you know you're excited the first time you see it and then you realize how bad it is so he talks about the regulation of uh, calcium and phosphorus he first talks about how to adjust calcium for low albumin he kind of uses the kind of the classic adjustment of uh, 0.8 for every one gram that the albumin falls doesn't spend any time mentioning that it's not very accurate especially in renal failure especially in critically care patients so be careful that 
because that doesn't account for uh, acid base changes, you can um, you can get into trouble with that uh, with that adjustment. This is one of those things that I it's like one of those hills that I regularly die on is like not believing in corrective calcium. The data for corrected calcium, if folks have ever looked at it, there's like a case series of about 50 patients from the 1970s, and then a follow-up study on like another 70 patients. And like each of us has probably calculated more than that number of corrected calciums in our individual practice lifetimes than those two papers combined. So there are bigger data series that we can put in the show notes, but there are three papers that have come out in the last five years on thousands of patients each that really show that just taking the regular calcium level is actually more accurate to get close to the ionized calcium than is the corrected calcium. And if you're really just wondering what the ionized calcium is, just get an ionized calcium. It's way better to get a sense of what the physiologically active level of calcium in the body is. So I didn't know there was data to support that. So Josh, I'm really glad to hear yeah, that. Yeah, the, the new data sets are looking at like 5,000, 10,000, and 8,000 patients as opposed to like 50 and 70. So the, the real weight of the evidence supports going with the calcium or really if you're curious and wondering, get an iCal. But is that true in both directions? Or is that only true in your argument that somebody has a hypercalcemia when their serum albumin is on the high side? Because don't you think it's a real thing if their serum albumin is very low? That they might... So, and, so and- the, the original paper, the original case series by Payne in the British Medical Journal uh, in 73 looks at these like 50 cases of people who have low calcium concentrations with low albumins, and then says, we made this correction factor that suddenly takes all those low calciums and puts them in the normal range, and we should apply that to all of our test samples. And like these other newer papers show that even with a low albumin, using that corrected calcium number has no predictive value with guessing where your iCal is going to turn out to be. You know, a lot of small hospitals, community hospitals, do not have ionized calcium. So we're pretty spoiled. I think we are. And I think then you can just go with your calcium number and not fuss with it. And you're probably better off that way. And international too, Melanie, in many countries, ionized calcium is a, a very expensive test or it's just not available. So it's, it's reassuring to know that this uh, most recent studies that Josh is quoting uh, show that total calcium is still very helpful. But I think it's still, um, with all its, its flaws about this correction, it raises the, an important physiological fact, which is how calcium is present in, in bloodstream, which is a big part of it is bound to albumin uh, and part of it is, is ionized or forming with other, other uh, compounds. And it, in a clinical setting, uh, uh, we can order ionized calcium and in patients that are in continuous renal replacement therapy and, and, and CVVHDF, we monitor ionized calcium and the number is usually around one, one point something. When we talk about dialysate baths, we're talking about 2.53 and kind of understanding why those numbers change uh, going from mediocolins to minimals and why those numbers are 1 and 2 versus serum calcium being 10 comes down to understanding this, how much of the calcium is bound to albumin, how much is free, and then, of course, what is milligrams per deciliter, what is milliequivalents per liter, and what is millimoles per liter. That's pretty tricky. But I but I, I, I yeah. use that example. I mean, I use it uh, all, all the time to, you know, the way I remember millimoles versus milliequivalents is dialysate baths and you know and so dialysate's measured in millimoles per liter the dialysate's milliequivalence milliequivalence yeah so a three milliequivalent bath is a 1.5 millimole bath 
Gotcha. So it's not as hypercalcemic as it sounds. But even a two, you know, even a two point five is a one point two five ionized. So even a low calcium bath is still hypercalcemic relative to most patients. And that's because, you know, we're, we remove calcium convectively during dialysis. We were trying to give some calcium back. That's kind of always been the approach. But, uh, you know, originally we had a 3.5 was a standard bath, a 1.75 ionized. It's um, a lot of calcium you're giving people. And well, gets and back that, that was to, part of the strategy to suppress PTH, right? That was part of our management of secondary hyperparathyroidism is to jack up that calcium. Yeah, and that's actually brought up in this chapter. Yeah, exactly. That we would do that. And also because you were all, you know, we didn't have vitamin D. We didn't have 125 back then. So patients, they couldn't absorb it in their gut. They were, and then we would be removing it convectively on dialysis. So you needed to put them in a positive calcium balance through dialysis. And then I think we went too far. We didn't change it. We didn't lower our baths enough because now everybody gets vitamin D. And back then it was as it was an aluminum-based binder. So you didn't have calcium in your diet as a binder and then everything changed you have calcium in your as a binder and you've got vitamin d to suppress pth that wasn't available back then so we had to change our baths um otherwise we were going to you know turn our patients to stone melanie do you have something yeah the other thing is that you know having the acidosis that so many of our patients have heading into their treatment is protective against symptoms from hypocalcemia so as you dialyze them and correct the acidosis, they're now at risk for seizures and other symptoms so, related so to re- hypocalcemia. Re- rewind that a little bit. So why, why is the acidosis protective? What's, what's going on there? Well, for for this, for because um, in the setting of acidosis, then there's more free uh, or ionized calcium um, available, less bound to albumin because, you know, albumin is negatively charged. So um, normally some calcium binds to albumin and some is free. And if you have a situation with acidosis, then there's more hydrogens around. More hydrogens perhaps take slots on those albumin charge. And then we have uh, more free or ionized calcium. Right, so a larger fraction of that total calcium is going to be a free ionized physiologically important calcium. So acidosis in our dialysis patients that we see universally is protective against hypocalcemia. And then, so what, so then you were, so then if you start dialysis and you correct the acidosis, now you have less, uh, so you don't have the acidosis and now more calcium can again bind albumin and less will be free less will be ionized, and so you're at risk for symptoms from hypocalcemia, including seizure. I had a dramatic example of this. I had a patient with hungry bone syndrome following a parathyroidectomy, a dialysis patient, and we had him on a calcium drip. And I mean, you've you've all seen these patients. I mean, it takes it's just grams of calcium that they're absorbing into their into their bones. Alonzo Morning came to our hospital, so he was doing like a little tour for Amgen promoting because he got his kidney transplant and he was on Amgen. It was one of the ways that he was able to continue to play basketball. So he came and talked to this kid. The kid got so excited, he started hyperventilating and developed respiratory alkalosis, dropped his ionized calcium and got laryngospasm from the hypocalcemia. And so it was not the greatest celebrity experience for the 
but because the kid had to go to the ICU. But it was a good demonstration of physiology. You know, it's really important because, you know, we poo-pooed this whole albumin thing, but I think the pH, that's a real thing. I mean, you know, Joel brought up a great example. Melanie brought up a great example. And what I teach the residents about this the way I always bring it up is I say, you know, what does is, what is acidosis do to ionized calcium? What is alkalosis? And they have no idea. I say, well, what happens? What are the symptoms of hyperventilation syndrome? And they go, uh, well, you know, you get a little numb and you get carpal pedal spasm. We go, exactly. Because you're dropping your ionized calcium and that's what happens. And if you can't remember it any other way, remember it that way, that alkalosis lowers ionized calcium and acidosis raises it. And absolutely in renal failure where you're, you maybe have a low calcium, it's very, very protective. The, the pH is really relevant to ionized calcium. I'm not so excited about albumin. But well, and that, I'm really and that, glad that. Right, and that's the problem with those those adjustments is they just pick one one variable to use, and it's just a multivariable situation. It's the relationship is not so simple. It, it is ex- interesting, Joel. I actually have also a, a story about this topic. And as a fellow at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, I walk into the patient in the ICU, and this patient had rhesus sardonicus, had this uh, muscle spasticity and tetany the patient had like the joker the car you know rhesus sardonicus the face was the muscles in the face had this expression of of a, of a smile but it was dramatic uh, the patient had a biker drip running at that time and the total serocalcium prior to initiation of the drip the total calcium was 6.2 and the patient was started on a, on a biker drip what is incredible to me about this topic is that the literature you know i, I immediately went to pop okay where is this case series to show that this happens and you find it in books but it's very challenging to find case reports case series of this phenomenon and yet everybody has a story like about this, it's very interesting. Why is that? Uh, doesn't there aren't a lot of clinical papers on this? Great bit on that. Then the book moves into the calcium and phosphorus metabolism in kidney failure, and he walks through the story uh, early in kidney failure. At, uh, as your GFR falls, your phosphorus load, your filtered load of phosphorus, is going to drop. And initially, you can still maintain phosphorus balance by decreasing the tubular reabsorption of phosphorus. And that's going to be mainly under the influence of PTH. That as PTH goes up and presumably FGF23, which is not invented at the time of this book or discovered at the time of this book, also goes up and allows you to maintain phosphorus homeostasis at the expense of elevated FGF23 and the expense of elevated PTH. And and he points out that you can prevent these hormonal changes by reducing phosphorus intake, which is a nice demonstration of, you know, kind of the primacy of the phosphorus intake as as the cause of this, whether it's probably not something that's achievable as a recommendation, but a, a nice demonstration there and that eventually you get to a point where you can no longer reduce phosphorus reabsorption and you're going to get phosphorus accumulation at that point and um, and then he says well wh- what do we do at that point and he talks about phosphorus binders as being the next step after you've adjusted diet and have ex- exhausted the changes in PTH and that this is going to be at a, at a very low level of GFR or dialysis he talks about the aluminum binders which he said were highly effective but caused aluminum toxicity this is something that that predates me 
So I'm just going to talk to Roger. Roger, do you remember aluminum binders? We used to see a little bit of it, but by, pretty much by the time, even I was a fellow, they, we were still using them, but we knew of aluminum toxicity, so everyone got an aluminum level every month. You know, I don't know if they still do that or not, but uh, we used to get an aluminum level every month and kind of keep an eye on it. But it, it had a lot of manifestations. Of course, originally it was encephalopathy, and, it, and the encephalopathy was because we didn't remove it, aluminum from the water. Um, it was really bad, but we were still using aluminum-based binders, which are they're really good binders, by the way. <laughs> I still use them once in a while if I'm really stuck. I mean, you don't get aluminum toxicity in a few months. It, it, was, it takes years of this stuff before you'd get it. And then it would manifest as an osteodystrophy, a low turnover osteodystrophy and hypercalcemia and, and anemia and a whole, a whole host of things. Uh, and then they basically came out with calcium-based binders and aluminum was dead dead in the water and uh, talk about citrate binders was it calcium citrate binders yeah so they came out with calcium citrate and and uh citricale it was called and uh that was real popular until they realized it increased aluminum absorption in the gut that's right he talks about two different mechanisms for increasing aluminum absorption this uh, this is just kind of interesting so one you would get aluminum citrate salts that could be absorbed and then dissociate after that that's not how they were supposed to work and then the other one was that it would lower the intestinal calcium level so low that you would get loosening of the tight junctions, which would allow passive absorption of aluminum that way. And so this is why citrate kind of fell away as a phosphate binder. And we were left with calcium carbonate and calcium, I'm sorry, calcium acetate. Calcium carbonate and calcium acetate is the primary binders. Rose talks about this being that one of the problems there is hypercalcemia. I, I, I got to say, I see very little hypercalcemia in my dialysis patients. and But when I was a fellow, everybody was always worried about hypercalcemia. And I was like, I, I don't see it. We're not seeing this hypercalcemia, guys. You, you know, you're worried about the wrong thing. And it was just because they, they were coming off of these high calcium baths that Roger was talking about. And once those went away, this disease kind of went away. We haven't seen a lot of hypercalcemia since then. Well, at one point, as you mentioned earlier, it was actually, a, you know, you wanted to have, you'd like your patient to be a little bit on the high calcium side to suppress their PTH. Now we have better means of doing that. But, you know, that was the big deal, you know, get them a little high and suppress their PTH. Burton Rose talks a little bit about these uh, synth- semi-synthetic vitamin D analogs that are supposed to have less hypercalcemic effects. So, uh, you know, we did the ferric citrate study for, as a binder, uh, supplying supplying iron as a uh, nice side effect of, of a phosphorus binder. And everyone was very concerned at first because it was ferric citrate that would increase aluminum absorption. And uh, they were very worried about that. But, you know, fortunately, we were able to show very quickly that it did not, the aluminum levels were fine. But, you know, that could have been the death of that binder. But fortunately, it wasn't. And it's, you know, it's it's got a place in the market. Yeah. And I think those those new iron-based binders are kind of the next generation after Civelomer, right? There's ferric citrate, which is the commercial name is Arixia. Arixia. And then uh, sucoferic oxyhydroxy something, which is velforo. Iron is the cation. If if that if your patients can get on that orixia, that uh, that iron citrate, it's pretty damn good binder. I've been very impressed with how well it works. Yeah. Well, when we when we did the study, it was pretty equal to to Cibelomer. Yeah, slightly worse than um, calcium acetate. Really. But- Really, but, but you know, like one pill different. They were very, very similar. But you do get the added, you know, you get the added iron, which is, you know, they're not a bad idea. And they're chewables, right? Both of them, the Velforo Rixi. I think. It, I think the problem is the coverage, though. Oh, they're incredibly expensive without insurance. Yeah. I mean, frightening, like shockingly. We need gummy binders, don't you think? 
We skip two figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we skip 622, which is really dramatic. This was um, Slatopolsky put, took some dogs and he put some on a very, very low phosphate diet, 100 milligrams a day, and the other group was on a high phosphate diet. And what you're seeing in this figure is that they gave them renal failure. And if they had a low phosphate diet, their PTH did not go up. I mean, it really drives that whole trade-off hypothesis thing home, which is the next figure, actually, is the, you know, famous bricker Sladopolsky trade-off hypothesis where your GFR is getting worse. This is, a, this is hypothetical. That was not a real study. The, PT, the, the phosphate goes up a little bit and then PTH goes up to deal with it. So phosphate becomes normal and so on and so on so that your labs look normal, but at a cost and that's your bones. And now I guess if we drew this same picture, we'd put an FGF 23 line in there somewhere. But I still think that's a really um, telling figure. Even if everybody's like making faces. (laughs) I feel like nephrologists are constantly oscillating between whether we actually care about bone or not. I'm not oscillating. (laughs) That's true either. Uh, the, Bricker, the Bricker hypothesis is pretty cool, but we don't do anything with it. So it's kind of cool to understand why phosphorus goes in this direction, PTH goes in this direction, and calcium. But I think our frustration comes to the, as we discussed earlier, so what? You know, PTH is 322, my CKD patient. Okay, next. You know, we can talk about phosphorus diet. I mean, this, this experiment with the dog experiment is pretty remarkable how dietary phosphorus was a critical factor for the PTH uh, increase. But it's very difficult when you're sitting with a patient that you're putting on a low salt restriction, uh, you know, you're worried about potassium, you limit phosphorus, patients got to leave. It's very difficult. I, I have, I, th- I find it challenging to push dietary, uh, rigorous dietary recommendations to patients, to be honest. You know, it's like you got to find a balance of, of enjoying I, life. I would be much more willing to pu- push rigorous dietary recommendations if I had rigorous data to support it. Like when patients ask me what the best diet is, I always tell them the Mediterranean diet because I feel like we got pretty good data that that really helps and my patients have very high cardiovascular mortality. And, and But I, these renal-specific diets, I'm, I'm just underwhelmed. But that's a doctor recommendation more than a nephrology recommendation, right, Joel? Right. Absolutely, yeah. 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 That, that, because that, because our, we've, we've spent all of our dietary energy trying to get lower phosphorus and showing that lower phosphorus intake lowers serum phosphorus. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a circular logic. I'm not so impressed. But outcomes, the hard outcomes have just been lacking. No, I'm sorry. There's good data that shows that, you know, when patients are phosphoruses are high and they're given the same PTH, we're always saying, well, your, your diet, you're not following your diet and you're not taking your binders. But there's good data that says that there's extreme variability in how people absorb phosphorus and how binders work independent of what they eat and independent of how well they take their binders. I've had patients that absolutely would bet my life that they're taking everything and their phosphorus is terribly high and following their diet and other people that don't follow anything their phosphorus are low we spend all this energy working on their pill counts and their diets and it's terrible because that makes them feel guilty it yes. makes them feel that we don't even we can't even support it as Joel's pointed out Ellie what'd you say yeah the renal diet is the diet that 
we suggest to keep them out of trouble when they can't handle potassium or phosphate, but that's not good for the kidney. And I think the problem is the best diet for the kidney might be Mediterranean or more plant-based. And for people who have food insecurity, that's just impossible. So it's really hard. In the book, Dr. Rose mentions two disorders of mineral bone disease osteitis fibrosa, and the metastatic calcifications caused by secondary hyperparathyroidism. Both of these disorders are the result of a very high bone turnover in the setting of high PTH. Today, we routinely measure and suppress intact PTH, and it's important to remember that there's another end to the spectrum of bone disease. Though it wasn't known about when this book was written, we've since discovered the FGF23 co-receptor clotho, which allows the kidney to excrete excess phosphate. Early in CKD, soluble clotho expression decreases and FGF23 production increases. Hypocalcemia and secondary hyperparathyroidism result, and over time, the PTH receptors on bone become resistant to PTH. This, coupled with the oversuppression of PTH, leads to adynamic bone disease. Osteoblast and osteoclast activity are markedly reduced, and osteoid doesn't accumulate. This might sound like a good thing, but this adynamic bone is not healthy or strong. Patients with adynamic bone disease are prone to fractures. One study found that patients with CKD and PTHs less than 195 picograms per mil have a 22% increased risk of fracture. It's not just fractures, though. Remember that bone serves as a buffer and a reservoir for cerium calcium. When osteoblast PTH receptors are resistant to PTH, the body is not able to quickly store calcium in bones. Patients with adynamic bone disease are therefore at risk of hypercalcemia when calcium-based phosphorus binders are administered. Not only that, but extraskeletal calcifications are more common in patients with low bone turnover. On the other hand, when serum calcium is low, skeletal resistance to the effects of PTH puts patients with adynamic bone disease at risk for hypocalcemia as well. Unfortunately, adynamic bone disease is much more common than you would expect. 18% of patients with CKD 3-5 through and 19% of ESRD patients on hemodialysis, all the way up to a whopping 50% of patients on peritoneal dialysis are affected. So far, current therapies are approved and recommended based solely on their ability to lower serum PTH. Until harder outcomes are investigated, the skepticism you hear from us on this podcast is probably wise. Can we bring uh, calcium phosphorus uh, bone metabolism to to a close? Do we have anything else to to say about this? We're good here. No mention of uh, Sinicalcet in this, again, a drug that was going to be uh, come out a few years later, um, and, and no mentions of FGF23. So a particularly dated section, but uh, onward we go. Catecholamines. We kind of... We- we covered some of yeah. this uh, early episode. We talked about uh, norepinephrine. Talked about dopamine earlier. Rolling. Yep. Dopamine. Uh, Anything that people were excited about here? I I am, duh, but I thought that was really cool that norepinephrine increases sodium resorption, and so that's why you don't get pressured uh, naturesis. I thought that was neat. That's not something that ever occurred to me. It never even occurred to me that that would be a problem. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that would happen if you didn't have increased uh, sodium resorption at the same time. Excellent. Talks about uh, uh, dopamine, the nephrology punching bag. Yeah, the only thing I was excited about here was punching it more and just saying that renal dopamine should still stay dead. I think the subtitle of this subchapter could be like great, great physiologic ideas that just like didn't ha- like pan out. Yeah. Out. Okay. The next section is kinins. This this these are this is the the protein and uh, hormonal system developed just to cause a cough and ACE inhibitors. Is that correct, or was there some other role <laughs> for this drug, this hormone? 
We touched on this little vasodilator. Little vasodilator. A lot of got a naturetic effect as well. We're going to get to erythropoietin because we are going to finish this chapter tonight. Erythropoietin, boy, super important hormone. Yeah, so this is the hormone that stimulates red blood cell production, kind of goes through the mechanism of this, talks about why would you make if you, why is the kidney the site of EPO production? Why does that make sense? Why is this not done in the bone marrow or the liver or some other organ? And he says uh, at the bottom of page 211, the kidney is well suited to be the site of EPO production because it is able to dissociate changes in blood flow alone from those in oxygenation. Reducing renal blood flow, for example, will also tend to diminish both the glomerular filtration rate and total tubular sodium reabsorption. Since active transport is responsible for most of renal oxygen consumption, the relation between oxygen delivery reduced by hypoperfusion, and oxygen utilization, reduced by decreased reabsorption, is relatively well-maintained, thereby preventing an inappropriate increase in eposynthesis. This is so cool, right? The idea that decreased renal blood flow decreases renal work, and so that you can actually measure the oxygen level in the blood there, independent of uh, the renal blood flow. So it's just a, it's, it's a particularly smart organ to use to kind of uh, regulate that EPO production. So Joel, are you, is what you're saying is that the, because a kidney, it uses up so much energy, it's very, it needs more oxygen. So it should be the one that, that regulates no, it's it? The point, the point is, is that the amount of energy consumed by the kidney is going to be directly related to its renal blood flow. So as the renal blood flow goes down, the renal work also goes down. And as the renal blood flow goes up, the renal work goes up. And so that the oxygen consumption is going to be related to the, to the blood flow. And in other words, uh, you can measure the oxygen level in the kidney and it's going to be reliable whether there's high blood flow or low blood flow. If you were going to measure the oxygen level in the muscle, when you had low blood flow, you would extract a lot more oxygen from there because the demand is the same. The low renal blood flow would be easily misinterpreted as ischemia or low oxygen levels. Does that make sense? I guess what I'm, yeah, absolutely. I just, I remember in like chapter one or something, we talked about how much energy the kidney uses relative to its size. Relatively high. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like a very small organ. It uses the massive amounts of oxygen and, and, and therefore, I mean, maybe that's another argument that why it should come from the, it should come from the kidney because the kidney is very, it, it uses more oxygen. And then there's a, there's a bit on EPO in chronic renal failure. You know, again, an absolute godsend. This is one of the very first biologic drugs, right? I mean, after, I think insulin is the very first one. And then EPO is the, is the second one. And it's, an EPO is way more complex. It's not just a protein. It's a glycoprotein, right? There has to be a lot of post-translational modifications for it to be, to be work. It's amazing that they were able to create it. And, you know, this is a drug that comes out, I think, in 1988 and overnight revolutionizes hemodialysis. People, you know, people are walking around with hemoglobins in the sixes and sevens and all of a sudden they're, they have normal, they're not normalized, but hemoglobins up to 10 and 11 pretty quickly. Transfusion requirements plummet with the introduction of EPO. Really, really imp- massive improvement in the viability and uh, tolerability of dialysis with this invention. What we learned with EPO is that just how much of uremia symptoms were actually anemia symptoms, you know, that once you get somebody's hemoglobin up, they felt a lot better. And it wasn't just the dialysis had anything to do with it, but a lot of symptoms. So, but then of course it went way too far. And, you know, uh, the companies that made this drug wanted to, they just kept pushing up the hemoglobin. Let's, okay, well, well, let's, nine. We all were, we're all guilty of this. 
we all saw how much better people did at seven than they did at five and at nine than they did at seven. And let's, let's share the responsibility for a, a major misadventure. But what Roger's getting at is we started looking at normalizing hemoglobin, bringing people up to hemoglobins of 13. And we did this first in dialysis patient. This is the Bezirap trial. It was published in what, NEJM in like 1998 or something like that. And this trial is, it was supposed to show superiority of the high hemoglobins. The trial is stopped early and shows no difference in the two groups. But even the, even a cursory reading of the trial shows that if it hadn't been stopped, if it, they stopped it a week later, there would have been a clear separation and a significant increase in harm in the patients with the high hemoglobin. But we did not learn our lesson from the Bezerab trial. We had all kinds of explanations for why the high hemoglobin group may have done better. None of them possibly even accepting the possibility that EPO was the culprit. And we repeated the sin in chronic kidney disease until three trials, what acquire, create, and treat. Acquire and create were EPO versus plus. Not placebo. There were two different doses of EPO, two different targets of hemoglobin, and then treat was a placebo versus darbipoietin. And all all three of them were very consistent that the high hemoglobin and the normalization of hemoglobins were harmful. There, there's also a really nice episode of the NFJC podcast that just came out on the new HIF agents. The was that 2021? Oh, that would, yes. We're, <laughs> we have to reference what years. And I think it was uh, Nef JC serial number 31 uh, that <laughs> references <laughs> the Ruxagistats of the world uh, and outlines these trials and talks about it. Although I actually just listened before this, trying desperately to get a little beef on my HEF stabilizer um, knowledge for this talk. And I listened to it, a little like talk that Dr. Wish had given, um, and he calls it Ruxagistat. <laughs> Roxadusta? Yeah, which remember, I don't know if you remember, but during Kidney Week, I did like a little poll because I heard someone call it Roxadusta during ASN Kidney Week. And I was like, what? And it's like half half the people out there. But what do you call think it, it should be called? Roxadusta, like Josh just said. That's just how it. Roxadusta. To me. Oh, no, no. It's Roxa. See? Roxadusta. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Anything, anybody else have any other stories on EPO? I mean, I don't know about stories, but I just want <laughs> to, you know, it can be an anecdote. I, I, yeah, I, I get no, I just want to say that I, there is the additional concern about malignancies associated with yeah, EPO, right? And so this idea that some malignancies actually get stimulated, and I think the idea is still the same that is so in situations where the hemoglobin really goes up because you increase oxygen delivery and, and, and potentially vascularization of some tumors. I th- you know, I think it's more than oxygen delivery. I thought it had to do with kind of a, a pro-hormone. Yeah, exactly. But either way, I think it got car- a little carried away. And you got to look at the big picture sometimes. But So uh, this was first identified in um, in a trial in head and neck cancer in which they were using EPO to try to minimize transfusions and improve quality of life. And people that were actually, they were terminal patients. And one of the surprising findings in the study was a shortened lifespan for the people and randomized to ESAs. EPO was a real was a real game changer though for patients. It really improved quality of life as long as you have the, you know, your 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 goal isn't excessive. But it really did make patients feel a lot better. It's a big deal. The the the, the thing is, it just got we got a little carried away with it, as you pointed out. To me, it is one of the formative moments of my 
my career is that I was hook, line, and sinker into normalization of hemoglobin. I was reading all these retrospective and observational trials showing all these patients doing much better with higher hemoglobins. I believed it all. And when the rug got pulled out from under me, it changed how I look at all data. And I am incredibly suspicious of observational data now. And it really is informed what, you know, we were just talking about calcium phosphorus PTH, where it's like, I refuse to get fooled again. And, and, but for me, I think it, it really is kind of changed how I perceive kind of all, all these different advancements. One uh, interesting aspect of EPO that is not covered in this chapter, surprisingly, is uh, angiotensin 2. Uh, there's uh, plenty of uh, experimental clinical evidence that show that angiotensin 2 stimulates erythropoietin. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, release or secretion. And uh, I remember reading a perspective paper on this topic, how uh, in a way the kidneys are in control of the hematocrit because you have the angiotensin uh, controlling blood volume and tone, vascular tone, and you have the EPO controlling the uh, red cell mass. So at the end, what the kidneys are doing is controlling the hematocrit. In angiotensin 2, takes part of both parts of that control by controlling salt and water and controlling controlling retinal mass through erythropoietin. And the one clinical entity that comes to mind, obviously, is in post-transplant erythrocytosis, where uh, inhibition of angiotensin II is uh, therapeutic. Like the first time I actually got it, and I recognized, oh, this is what this guy has. He's got post-transplant erythrocytosis. I'm, I'm supposed to give him an ACE inhibitor. And I'm like, I'm prescribing the ACE inhibitor. I'm like, this will never work. Right, because I've prescribed <laughs> thousands of them, but I've never seen any anemia for, develop from it. And my God, does it work? It was—it's really, really impressive. What is it about the transplant that causes this? Well, you have three kidneys. Perhaps you have three—the mass of three kidneys—and <laughs> you have a lot of angiotensin two intrarenally, and those uh, scarred uh, and damaged kidneys. You know, you get—you go from a deficit of EPO with a new kidney, you have an excess of EPO. I want to make one more point about one more point about EPO. You know, EPO is being replaced, but it's not being replaced at at physiologic doses. It's being replaced at pharmacologic doses. It's really we're giving a lot of EPO because we're not just treating EPO deficiency. We're treating a uremic bone marrow. So we give, you know, and that may be part of the problem is that, that of the side effects of thrombosis and maybe cancer or whatever else that, that can happen. I see occasionally people getting EPO levels as, a, as though there's ever any reason to get an EPO level. I can't even imagine it because it's not it's not relevant. With CKD, you've got EPO resistance. You've got a sick bone marrow and you're overcoming that with a pharmacologic dose. Okay. He goes on to talk about endothelin. We did that. Do we have anything else to say about endothelin? Good. Nitric oxide, I'm really wrapping this up. Nitric oxide, vaso, local vasodilator, happens throughout all of the vasculature and may have some specific roles in the kidney. Anybody find anything particularly interesting about this? No, but I just wanted to make one comment. I was doing some reading about pressure natresis, and I think a lot about these, horm- these hormones is that they act locally, and so I think they think perhaps nitric oxide, kinins, and all that stuff may be part of the mechanism for pressure naturesis. Okay, I'm going to call this chapter done. We are done with part one of Burton Rose. Onward to something called, I think it's called water. Is that what it is? It's a I got a little of water reading that. Balance. Right? Right? Chapter seven is going to be awesome. 
but chapter six was great. This was a good chapter. I really, I really like this chapter. This is a, uh, I think it's a good. This is how things really work. It's kind of an integration chapter. I really enjoyed this. Okay, we're gonna hit the stop on the recordings.